0: Hey, everyone, welcome to the first Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today, I've got a special guest, a friend here in Auckland, New Zealand, Steve Pipe. How are you going, Steve?
1: I'm good, thanks.
0: (laughs) Flex for the camera. So for people who aren't too sure about about you and your background, do you want to give us a quick little rundown of who you are, what you're doing, maybe your past fight experience and anything else that you deem necessary?
1: Sure. So I'm a strength and conditioning coach. Um, specializing with Muay Thai or striking sports. Um, I have a, you know, quite a big, um, what's the word, stable of fighters that I train um, <clears throat> from various different gyms, different backgrounds, um, but most of them are at quite an elite level. Um, now focusing more on the, um, you know, South Pacific Oceania region. Um, so that's kind of like my niche in a nutshell, um, but then, I like to think of myself uh, and you know, I I have like the testimonials to back it up that I'm a a high performance coach. So, you know, I work with like a broad, broader range of different clients and and, um, athletes from different sports, but kind of in a nutshell, yeah, the main kind of pretense that I work with or main type of clients that I work with is combat sports athletes, so wrestlers, BJJ, Muay Thai, striking, but yeah, I kind of built my niche around striking but then like around striking sports, but then um, as kind of things went along and time went on, I had people approached me from different other sports and um, yeah, they were wanting to train with me as well. So um, I wasn't going to say no. So it's just all, you know, good, healthy experience. And um, yeah, in terms of my, my background, um, I was a professional fighter in Thailand. I was fighting on Max and um, I fought at a, Pretty high level here in New Zealand too. Had a few like championships and stuff. So um, yeah, had had a good amount of experience um, from that side of things, competitive experience. But I guess like for me, I always had in the back of my head that I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be a coach, and uh, that kind of stems back to your your core values. So like my my core value, one of my core values is helping others. So being a coach, I guess, was always kind of you know gonna be something that I did. Um, and I felt like being a strength and conditioning coach, it gave me the ability to kind of channel my, um, you know, my, my core value of helping others and also my passion for like biomechanics, human movement, human performance. I mean, when I first started training in the sport of Muay Thai, I was obsessed with how to make my body and everyone else that was working with me's body more kind of like optimal for the sport. And I just explored every avenue with like a microscope went down everything checked everything um when i was in thailand it gave me a really good opportunity at quite a high level fighting on max muay thai to kind of guinea pig a lot of things on myself and to really see what training methodologies and protocols were able to withstand the kind of like the test of time and you know just kind of like like recurring themes that i felt were like really beneficial to to high-level performance, and then because of that, uh, I got to work with a lot of top-level Muay Thai fighters. So I was training and fighting out of Yokao in Thailand, and then the owner of the gym he saw how passionate I was about these things, and he got uh, Singdam, who's a eight-time uh, Thai champion, um, to train with me. Uh, he was like my my first top-level Muay Thai fighter, <laughs> and he's like one of the one of the best ever, two-time. Sports Fighter of the Year Award winner, so, so no pressure,
0: <laughs> eh? no pressure for your first, no pressure. first athlete. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, it's you know it's it's it taught me a lot working with him because um, he's an incredibly kyphotic person um, and kind of like you know he's like this because he 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 kind of as his career developed he kind of got a bit of a suspect chin, so he he kind of had to modify his style to have his shoulders like really here and like hunch forward. Um, so yeah, working with him was it taught me a lot because at the beginning we can get into this a little bit later too but like at the beginning I was trying to kind of like you know fix his posture if you will um and then it meant that it like it really like gave him incred- insane doms in areas that he like you know <laughs> wasn't supposed to have doms necessarily like um yeah he actually he actually ran away from the gym for like two weeks <laughs> he told Filippo no more no more but then, like, the good thing was, over time, I was able to, like, you know, get him back. And then we, we got some really good results. And then from there, I was able to train pretty much all the other Yochal fighters, too, all the top guys. Manachai, Yodchai, Spencer, Erhan. Um, and then from there, I got to work with Superbon and Petanong. So Superbon's uh, the champion of one at the moment, the uh, middleweight champion. Um, and then, or lightweight in UFC weight classes champion and then i also got to train um Pittenong as well who's uh, a one fc fighter muay thai fighter so that was kind of like my my background and then um yeah moving back to new zealand i always wanted to kind of take that elite level of like training and and like um i guess like the caliber of athletes that i've been working with it gave me a really good idea of where uh all all the athletes worldwide needed to be at um from from a from an overall athleticism perspective because you see these guys just dominating on the world stage and I was able to kind of like compile a lot of data and experience around working with these top guys and then coming back to New Zealand um, I always had that mindset of like bringing bringing everyone else up to that level too yeah
0: that's awesome that the listeners are in for a treat then you've got high-level experience fighting yourself and trying things on yourself but then using it on essentially your own high-level athletes but i wanted to touch on quickly before we jumped into some of the topics on our strength conditioning training you mentioned about the kyphotic postures now obviously for the listeners who yeah. aren't sure like a kyphotic posture is essentially like a rounded upper back and you obviously you see this a lot in strikers for the, for the reasons you mentioned now from your experience and and training others and yourself what do you see as the benefits of essentially not so much correcting it but kind of Training athletes out of that posture or getting them in that range to be able to um, extend that thoracic spine?
1: Yeah. So that's a really, really good question. I guess um, the best way that I can answer this is that when we um, improve thoracic extension and, uh, you know, shoulder flexion and external rotation, what it does is it gives us uh, the ability to load uh, more kind of like. I don't want to say compromise, but more kind of like unstable positions, which in turn helps us to, it has like a big kind of like ripple effect outward, you know? So, um, I guess like when I, what I referenced before, I was trying to like, correct his, his posture by training, you know, like lower traps, rhomboids, you know, training a lot of like scapular retraction and things like that. Oh, you still there? you know hindsight 2020 looking back it's not necessarily the answer it's just it's more about being able to get him
0: oh i got you
1: one sec cool it's it's more about being able to get him into a range of motion that um yeah like i was saying allows us to load those kind of like unstable positions and then from that position like if i'm able to get him up here as opposed to like like out here if I begin to, to here, all of a sudden it opens up so much more options for us from a stability perspective when we're looking deeper in the shoulder at like the rotator cuff um, and also the serratus to some degree as well, depending on kind of like how we're training this position. So those are muscles that are like heavily involved with throwing strikes. You know, like the serratus is going to be stabilizing our shoulder when we're in a protracted position and then the rotator cuff is also going to be working as well to stabilize the shoulder. So I guess for me now it's just i want to get that range so that i can load it with specific exercises that are then going to carry over into like his performance that's not to say that i want to spend heaps of time focusing on this i just want to get him here over time systematically it's like a you know a long-term goal systematically work to get him here and then look to kind of like develop the stability around this position which in turn i know is going to carry over into a striking. And that's something that, like, it takes time and understanding to really kind of gauge how that's beneficial to fighters and and their, you know, their striking performance. But, yeah, again, like I was saying, serratus and rotator cuff, those are two, two kind of, like, areas that we want to really target and stimulate. So that's where that thoracic extension comes into the play. The other thing as well is that the lats are often the reason why uh, athletes are unable to get into this position so the lats are what stabilize our spine through rotation so when we're looking at getting this kind of like in range of motion in terms of thoracic extension it helps us to really um, understand how the lats are working in relation to the shoulder and it just gives us a better ability to kind of like train the body systemically anyways or globally to improve the function of, of all these kind of like subcomponents
0: nice do you have any specific i guess you mentioned you do like a lot of rhomboid lower trap uh, rowing work do you have any other specific like uh, thoracic mobility exercise that you like to use i know you showed me one that i love that i can barely do because mine's stiff as oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, i might put that in, i'll put that in yeah. the description i'll put that in the description but yeah, sure. is, is that is that windmill the half kneeling windmill one probably your go-to favorite or you got some others in there
1: yeah, so that that really comes back. That really comes back to that really comes back to like yeah, the, the the lats and looking to train the function of the lats. Um, so you know, the, again, what I was saying, like the lats are what you know stabilize the spine through rotation. So when we're looking at assessing how well the lats are functioning, we want to make sure that there's an optimal range of motion there through that T spine, right? Because that's kind of like where the you know where the lats kind of fan across. So um, yeah, that that that's one of them. Another one would just be a re- like a really easy one that most people can do is a, a supinated lat stretch. So it's where you kind of just grip onto a barbell or a rack or whatever, or like a calisthenics frame, and you hold your, your hand like this. And then you just like walk your feet backwards and you end up, you're trying to get into like this position here. So, you know, I, I, I like this exercise because it basically allows us to take the lat into like its opposite end range. So like, the lats you know extend and internally rotate so when we go flex and externally rotate it takes us into like the polar opposite range of motion in terms of what the shoulders wanting or what the lats are wanting to take us into so it's a really good exercise to kind of like down regulate the lats and take away some of this you know like this kind of like excessive internal rotation on the shoulders and then it allows us it kind of like gives us like a, a temporary gateway into being able to load into like an overhead position. Um, so a lot of the time that, that that's that's kind of like the two that I use initially anyways, like I'd start with the, um, the super net lap stretch and I'd move into some type of like um, bottoms up press with a kettlebell um, because the kettlebell is going to be able to tell us how well our shoulder is or mainly our rotator cuff is able to stabilize through this range of motion. And it's also because it's an overhead press; it's also going to show how well we're able to get into this position as well. So rotations against the wall. Oh no! Oh, what's going on?
0: Yep, I got you back now. I got your voice back.
1: There we we're go. Back? Yep. Sorry, back. Okay. Cool. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what's going on. That's <laughs> <laughs> the, the
0: internet um, think, on the waps, man. I think. When we,
1: I think. Yeah, bro. I think we need to get Starlink out
0: here. <laughs> <laughs> so you're we're going to touch on some of your strength training philosophy now, essentially out of out of yep. camp and in camp, but kind of how that differs. Just based on what you have said so far, it seems like being able to get the arms overhead seems to be part of your strength training philosophy, being able to have yep. the mobility to get there. So you find that an important part of essentially a striker's, I guess you could say, strength training or training arsenals to be able to get the arms overhead freely and to be able to press weight overhead freely, essentially. Because I'm, I'm assuming there'll be a lot of strikers yeah. that, probably, that probably can't do that because of the reasons you mentioned with the yeah. rounded shoulders and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I, I've kind of streamlined a, you know, a series of like, um, exercises and like you know, training routines that kind of systematically allow me to build an athlete up to be able to acquire these ranges and then to load them. And I've gotten really good at being able to assess kind of underlying issues that might be kind of limiting the athlete, um, when it comes to uh, either like the mobility side of things or the stability side of things, or even the strength as well. So it's just kind of like taking it, taking a lens and just like going like three layers deep and just seeing kind of where they're at and then looking to help them to gain those positions. To then be able to load
0: them so then yeah. how how does for example you have an athlete say maybe he's he's had a fight he's maybe got say half a year to a year to his next fight how does your yeah essentially your out of camp preparation strength training how does that differ from essentially maybe say eight weeks out fight camp is there much of a nice. is there much of a difference yep. in terms of the the way you're programming is it going from say more general to specific stuff? Are there exercises that you know you're going to use within the specific prep that you're going to build to, or is it kind of just like everything flows through naturally and, you know, they continue on what they're doing outside of camp.
1: Great question. So when it comes to off camp versus in camp, uh, we'll start with off camp. So off camp is going to be more about, again, putting out, putting the athletes into more kind of like, um, like unstable positions. So, um, and when I say unstable, I don't mean standing on a wobble board or like, a fucking you know (laughs) one of those like pilates balls like it's not it's not like that it's basically like getting them to like limit their base of support for example so standing on one leg um, and then holding a weight in one of their arms so whether it be like contralateral or ipsilateral holding on opposite sides of our body and deviating the center of mass which in turn shows a lot about what's going on in the hips um, and how well they're kind of able to resist that force through their core as well and keep that pelvic stability. So a lot of the a lot of the stuff I do when it's off camp is essentially like rewiring. And when we it's like rewiring and it's kind of building up that that capacity to handle these different positions and then also increasing the load in those positions too. Because for me it's a lot of it is about building strength in specific ranges of motion and working a little bit more kind of unilateral. And then that way if I have the right exercises selected. By the time we get in camp and we start to do, for example, uh, quite high-intensity plyometrics, I know for a fact, based on the track record, all the groundwork we've laid down uh, prior to getting to this point, that their stability, their strength, their, their ability to absorb force dynamically is all primed and ready to go. All they need to do now is actually start to load it dynamically. So that's where the plyometrics and the ballistics and things like that come in. Um, if if we skip this phase and we go straight to the plyo, we're we're putting in we're adding an unnecessary risk into our athletes' training program. So if we have the like kind of groundwork here, when we get to here and we start to do the plyometrics and the ballistics, but then also maximal loading, so heavier loading. So I'll start the camp off, getting them to like work into more kind of like bilateral compound strength movements. And the reason why is because that gives us a greater ability to add maximal load. So I'm able to expose their bodies to tremendous amounts of load. And because I know that there aren't any underlying stability issues or mobility issues, I know that there isn't going to be any real compensation patterns occurring as long as the skills kind of like, you know, falling in line with what we're doing. Uh, it's not going to be, it's not, nothing's going to really rear its head until they're actually getting close-ish to failure. So that's a great, that's a great thing, because then it just comes down to strength. It's like, how strong are you, you know what I mean? And so I, I, when we're in camp, that's when we're starting to like really start to ramp up the kind of like peak in terms of strength. Um, and then obviously as we get closer and closer to the fight, we, we build up to a certain point, maybe around about four to three weeks out. And then it's like, like the volume is, is kind of dropping a lot. The intensity is going up from a strength perspective. Plyometrics training, ballistics. We're keeping the volume at a medium tier, like nothing too insane. Um, but because obviously we still need to have good intensity there. But then, yeah, building closer to the fight, increasing up that intensity, and then like dropping the volume right away. And then as we're getting even closer to the fight, it's really just like fine-tuning very small little details, very small movement patterns that we feel like are going to yield big returns for that specific athlete. So that's where like you know coach's eye and understanding your athlete comes into the picture and then once they've had their fight it's a it's a case of just kind of cycling back because when we're just doing all this bilateral work it it gives it gives the body kind of like a it gives it like this this time to kind of mask certain things that are going on so when we funnel back into like the unilateral stability kind of like off-camp style training it gives us the time then again to like Reassess what's going on under the hood, if you will. It's like a mechanic, you know, you've got this high performance race car and you're like sending it off on the track and you're just, it's just smashing it out for like, you know, two months or whatever. And then all of a sudden you take it back to the mechanic and it seems like it's fine. It's performing in a great level, but there's all these like nuts and bolts and screws and oil that's been leaking and all kinds of little things that just need to be like fine tuned before we then go send it out back onto the track again for the next season
0: nice so then based on that so you're only loading with heavy compound movements essentially once they start in camp so before that it's mainly the single leg or i guess you could say that mechanical side preparing them for that and then as they get in camp then they start to to do more compounds and heavier yeah. lifts for the next five weeks
1: so so let's say like you said we had six months right building up to the next five mm-hmm. so two months out of that would be like more kind of like unilateral uh, you know, limited base of support, um, deviating center of mass, um, looking to improve pelvic stability, core stability, all those kind of things, ensuring mobility was there. The se- let's say the second two months, we'll be focusing on introducing specific bilateral exercises, so that when we get in camp, they're not like, it's not a shock to them. They're not like, oh, I've never done this before. And it's like they're learning as they're in camp, you know what I mean? So That's where like the skill of learning those bilateral movements would come in. But we'd still have those other, there'd still be like a heavy um, component or element of that unilateral work that we're doing in the first two months. And then as we get more in camp, we'd start to phase away that unilateral work and we'd be streamlining more into the bilateral side of things. So it's kind of this like phasic model where it just kind of blends really nicely through. And then say like, Uh, after the first three months, so the two months of unilateral, one month of incorporating bilateral, but still unilateral work here. And then the like, let's say that fourth month, I would then start to reintroduce small components of plyometrics and ballistics too, just to make sure that they have a good understanding about what's going to be coming in the next two months. And then they're not, it's not going to be, again, it's not going to be a shock because when you're in camp, you don't want to be teaching new stuff all the time. You just want them to be able to come in absolutely send it smash it and then get out you don't want them to be thinking too much like oh, i've never done this before like this is like really hard you know it's like you want to keep it as kind of like stress free and as fun as possible so yeah that that that's kind of like how how i like blend it
0: yeah for sure that's a good that's a good lesson for the listeners as well for anyone who's essentially maybe training yourself for an upcoming fight there shouldn't be a drastic difference between your fight camp and out of fight camp if you start a fight camp preparation with all new exercises. Not only is it going to be hard and weird, you're going to be sore, and you're going to, and that's yep. going to affect your training bad. So that's a good lesson. So make sure you t- <laughs> make sure you take that in if you're doing your own training. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I wanted to touch on as well. How many days a week then of strength training, essentially, or training in the gym? Are they doing, say, um, out of camp versus in camp, or, or is it the same throughout? Two to three times a week, or something like that.
1: Um, yeah two or three I think uh, if, if they're in camp normally it's just going to be two um, and that's just because like depending on what gym they're at they'll have like quite um, quite differing conditioning routines and whatnot. so and it, and, it, and again it, a lot of it stems back to the fighter like there's, there's one girl that I'm working with remotely at the moment and she's kind of been like historically like really really light she always weighs in under what her weight class is she writes on Fights on one championship, and she's fighting it quite. She's starting to get into like the upper tier now because skill-wise, she's really good. But then, like, understanding that like, well, your weight is just way, way too light. So for her camp, would actually keep three days of strength training initially, even though she's in camp because, based on the time frame that we're working together, we we made like a kind of consecutive decision or executive decision, if you will, that it's better for her to have three days of strength training just to kind of give her that solid solidity in her frame and that strength that's because that's subjective to the individual right that's going to be the most beneficial for her whereas if you have other fighters that like they've done like extensive off-camp training they're really solid they're really strong everything's great unless they have some type of like small nagging injuries or anything like that there shouldn't really be any need to have that third day that third day is just like supplement, it would only be like supplemental accessory work. And depending again on their training routine, it could do more harm than good because it's just introducing like unnecessary fatigue when actually like you have to ask yourself, is it better just for them to rest or is it better for them to like have a third day of strength training, you know? So it's all relative, but definitely they have to have at least two days. Yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah, I think you touched on this as well. Like, um, I'm going to ask you about a little bit about specificity within that strength training, but obviously, as you mentioned, yes. it's, specificity is individual, obviously for your, your fighter in the one FC, she needs three sessions because she needs to hold that weight and maintain that muscle mass, whereas for someone else it's two. So within your strength training, then how do you have like a set of specific exercises that you like to use that you think transfer best or well to say MMA or striking sports? For example you see a lot of stuff on i mean instagram is the worst example for most exercises anyway but you see a lot of stuff on instagram for example people doing banded punches banded kicks blah blah blah. i have my own opinion on these but i wanted to hear from you essentially you know do you use them what's your opinion on on these so-called specific exercises do you have a set of specific exercises that you see that would transfer well that maybe the listeners can can have a look at
1: yeah this is (laughs) this is a good this is a good topic bro so i think um you know the problem that a lot of coaches um kind of like or the like the pitfall that a lot of coaches fall into is thinking that because an exercise is looks and kind of like simulates what goes on in a a specific uh sport or an environment like for example like you know banded punches like you're saying or like that kind of stuff you know because it looks so close to the sport that if we just add some load to it it's gonna be like it's gonna yield like really good returns and it's gonna like you know be beneficial to the fighter when it isn't always the case. There are like a few exceptions, but like yeah, like anything like um like for example like the banded kicks and like the banded punches, that kind of stuff, it can skew how the athlete throws their their technique. And so because it skews how they throw their technique and then when they go and hit the pads, and they're sparring, they're reverting back to a different technique. It kind of like asked the question like of, well, is it actually like really an effective exercise? You know what I mean? Um, so for myself, what I try to think about is what's going to give me, what exercise is going to give me the greatest ability to add load, but that is also going to be conducive to the sport as in like, it's going to be, it's going to give me access to ranges of motion that are going to be used in the sport. So that's why I s- that's why now I've actually moved quite far away from bench press uh, and back squat, and um, I tend to use things now like weighted push-ups, um, landmine press. Those that exercise in particular, it's got a bad rap because um, the, of the way and the timing in which fighters use it. Um, but the reason why I like landmine press and I like uh, weighted push-ups is because they give us the ability to load our shoulder in a protracted position. So which really helps us to stimulate the serratus, which gives us this like stability in these like more like end range positions, which is essentially what we're going to be using. You know, like if someone's coming at me strong and I can just bridge on them or like post on them and then counter from there, that, that's all coming from like my shoulder stability, right? My my shoulder's ability to be strong in this like more protracted position. And you see like fight stances too. They're never like back here like this, you know, I, like being strong here is nine times out of 10 you're going to get me knocked the f out in the (laughs) ring right so i you know so training these type of ranges of motion has become like more of like a staple to me especially as we're getting like closer to the fight um yeah so so things like that um and there's this like this specific movement patterns that i feel have like a a much higher yield in terms of like the results that you can get from the from the athlete and from the fighter when it comes to their performance. And it's a a case of like, yeah, looking at movement patterns that are like in their sport and and trying to find ways to load into them. And also at the same time, looking at other areas that they might be lacking purely from a biomechanical perspective where it's just not getting addressed in the actual sport, right? So, you know, Muay Thai, for example, is very like anterior chain dominant. There's a lot of like hip flexion, um, you know there's a lot of like loading just in general through the anterior chain so being able to do things like a heavy hinge for example with like a trap bar and other exercises that give us that ability to really build sh- meaningful strength through the hips um, th- those type of exercises tend to be like very beneficial for-, for a lot of fighters
0: yeah i love that i love i think a lot of people forget that when you're when designing a strength conditioning program, you're you're looking to fill the gaps that the sport doesn't give you, as you mentioned. You know, like yeah. for example, fighters everything's in front, so we need to do some stuff for the essentially for the back of the body. And I wanted to change checked a little bit to the conditioning mm. side. So we've, we've covered a lot of the strength side for yeah. listeners, and we can cover some of the conditioning side for the listeners too. But do you have much involvement with the conditioning side? Because I know as a coach, it can be a little difficult because obviously, within each gym, they essentially a lot of them do their own. Conditioning essentially the fighters do it with their with their sport coaches there within a team so do you have much involvement in that or much say in that do they come to you for say extras or anything like that
1: yeah so um just as you said and and like i said before it's um it's very subjective to the gym so like um for example like the fighters that i train i train about like five or six fighters now from from city kickboxing which is you know Um, being rated as like the number one MMA gym in the world and things like that. So they have already got in place a really good strength and conditioning routine that they follow. Um, So when I work with fighters from that gym, it's really just working on the strength side of things. Um, Other gyms as well, they have their own kind of like more, I would say like traditional style of like conditioning. Um, And so working with their coaches and with them as athletes my goal really is just to kind of like slot specific things in that might be like missing from their overall programming, you know? So uh, most of the time, it's this kind of like sub-maximal um, aerobic kind of power-based training that, um, that they're missing because a lot of the time they're either going like balls to the wall, hundred million fifty hundred million, 50%, <laughs> you know, they're just like going crazy, right. Pushing to the absolute limits. Um, Or they're kind of like a little bit down more in this like kind of like steady state realm. But this is that mid-range that they're missing. Um, And also like I think another part that can be overlooked is like the pulmonary side of things. So looking at how well their lungs are able to expel CO2 and also how well they're able to attach that oxygen into the blood. So, you know, there's like certain protocols that I just put in that kind of like fill in these little gaps that could be the missing link for each athlete. But it really just comes down to like a little bit of trial and error. Like you trial something for a period of time, you, you're in close contact with the athlete and you're saying to them like, how's that feeling? How are you finding that? You feel like I feel amazing, man. I feel super fit. You know, like this is the fittest I've ever felt. Awesome. Just keep doing what you're doing. Like don't change the thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, as opposed to like, oh, I still feel like my conditioning isn't there. Okay, sweet. Is it like a psychological thing or is it like, okay, they're actually not where we want them to be. So that sub-maximal work, it gives us a great ability to see how fast they can recover, especially from like a, like a heart rate perspective, because you can kind of link together how quickly someone can bring their heart rate back down from a relatively high intensity with a really high degree of, you know, aerobic fitness. Um, so like a good example would be some of the triathletes that I've trained, um, and some of the, like the top, top Muay Thai fighters that I've seen, um, when, when they, when we studied them with the heart rate monitors in Thailand, so they'll send their heart rate up very high and within 30 seconds, if that they'll already be de- back down to like a gray zone. So around about like 107, something like that. So a good example was like Thai. He was at like, yeah, he was at like 170, like 180, uh, like for like, you know, a good solid 90 seconds, the timer goes, he's got a minute to recover. Within that first 25 to 30 seconds, he's already back down to like gray, like low, like wow. low gray. You know? And and you're just like, damn, you know, like that's just insane. So his cardiac agility is just so phenomenal. It just gives him such an edge going into like each round, right? Because yeah. he's essentially back to normal. Whereas someone else, their heart rate could still be sky high, unnecessarily beating way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like going back in it like, oh my God, I'm going to pass out. You know, whereas like, he's just like, all right, sweet. Round, round four now. Cool. Touch gloves, You know, like, yeah. So I always found that to be like a really good indicator of like, you know, where an athlete's like conditioning levels at.
0: Nice. So how are you then addressing that, that heart rate recovery? Have you got specific protocols you use? or essentially like progressions you use to improve their heart rate recovery or is this going to be
1: based on the individual? Yeah. Yeah, so like a lot of it, a lot of it, a lot of the time, sorry, I see the, the athletes who get the best results are the ones that have the groundwork done and dusted in their off camp period. Uh, there's one guy that I'm working with at the moment. His name's Michael Isaac. He's like, you know, a top level um, kind of like amateur pro. He's, a, he's just trying to transition into the pro scene now. Um, but he's he's a young guy. He spent like his entire kind of like off camp just getting in that like ground level um, aerobic capacity work, and just maintaining his fitness through like you know bag bag training and like you know like not super intense. It's almost like kind of more along the lines of like flow state bag work training, skills training. You know, so because he got the got that like base level training in for that period of time, let's say like eight weeks. When we started to like bring the intensity up uh, when we got in camp, his ability to recover is like so much higher than someone that's like just said to me, okay, dude, I've got Steve, I've got 12 weeks. I need to get in the top shape that I can. We plug in like their first like aerobic power session. And then like we see that their recovery rate's not as good. So to answer your question, like the groundwork is what dictates how well they do in these initially. The second thing is like understanding how they're breathing can improve their recovery rate, especially from a heart rate. And a lot of it is about getting the athlete more in tune with their own body. So like you know, teaching them how to recover. So I e like breathing through your nose, and then like you know a, a little bit more diaphragmatically in between rounds. Not obviously when they're fighting because that's <laughs> a little bit dangerous. But like but like yeah, in, in between rounds, teaching them how to utilize that specific breathing techniques that bring them into a more of a parasympathetic state in between rounds so they're able to like recover and they're about they're able to be more present in the moment you know they're not just this like passenger on this like massive adrenaline dump in like fight or flight mode the entire time they're kind of able to like channel in and out of different states and different heart rate levels or heart rate zones um throughout the course of a fight
0: Nice. Nice. I like that. Focus on breathing too. And I wanted to touch further on that breathing as well. You mentioned about training, training the lungs, essentially. How are you, how are you going about training? It's specifically training the lungs in terms of conditioning.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there's, there's kind of like two ways that um, I I do that. Um, Number one would be like getting them onto a um, salt bike or rower. um, Something that's like, you're able to kind of maintain A relatively high intensity but not too high Um, and it's really important to understand that because if we go super 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 high it's it's really hard to maintain this kind of full expansion and compression of the lungs at at, you know during that kind of like highest or super high level of intensity so I tell them like you know I want you to go hard but I only want you to go as hard as you can whilst being able to maintain this like this breathing technique so I'm really like, I'm, what I'm really trying to do is like build up their lungs capacity and capabilities to, you know, provide their bodies, provide their working muscles with enough oxygen and at the same time expel CO2 out of their body too. So it's like short intervals with like a little bit shorter rest. So it's like a two to one um, work to rest ratio, but short intervals for like a long period of time. So let's say like 16 rounds and then like, what we're looking to do is maintain this kind of like expansion, compression, expansion, compression, and like they're fully expanding and they're fully compressing. So it's almost like treating your lungs as like a working muscle. So, yeah, this is, this is, this is like what I do with the guys when they're kind of like getting, um, when they're in camp. Um, and if it is something that we've addressed as like one of their issues or one of their like weaknesses, core weaknesses, It would be something that we'd also look to incorporate from an off-camp perspective too. Um, But again, towards the kind of like tail end of their off-camp. So yeah, that's one way. The other way would be like in a pool, um, same kind of thing. You're you're looking to move at like an intensity that allows you to fully expand and compress. Um, Being in the water, it just gives us that little bit more kind of like resistance there. Um, So that's like one other way that that we we can look to improve that that area of conditioning, the pulmonary side of things.
0: Nice. I'm going to come to the gym at some point. You can show me some of that. Maybe we do a little YouTube video yeah, or sure something.
1: <laughs> yeah, steal yeah, your, yeah, steal yeah. your secrets. Sure. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's good. that's good. That's interesting. Um, I want to touch on as well. Um, oh, actually, I want to touch on that quickly as well. Is there a way that you identify someone that needs essentially extra lung training or is it more kind of like, hey, this is what we're going to do anyway because most people do need it?
1: Yeah, so identifying identifying what is someone's rate limiter when it comes to conditioning can be like quite a challenging um, exercise to go through. Um, for me, what I like to do is I kind of like to take like a more of like a holistic approach or like a broader approach, and then um, what I do is I kind of like chop things up. So I'll I'll expose my athlete to like let's say like. Um, you know, the more kind of like cardiac-based conditioning protocols. Then I'll expose them to the more pulmonary. And then we'll also go down like a little bit of like the utilization route. And we'll just see like how they respond to all three. And then we can look in the off camp to like chop certain things up. So I might go, okay, we'll take away utilization and we'll take away like the cardiac. And it's like, how do they feel? You know what I mean? And then we can chop and change and we can just kind of see what area it is that they feel like they're really lacking in. And a lot of the time, like what they think is that is the issue might not actually be the issue. You know what I mean? So it's just that trial and error. If you want to get like really technical about it, you need to get like a, a blood oximeter and you need to do like very like specific testing. So it can be like, in my opinion with a combat sports athlete, it can be quite challenging because they're not in one specific position and one specific range of motion. So it can be quite like a, a challenging thing to do, to say the least, to really get like accurate data around them. Um, so again, that's why I kind of just tend to take a more broad approach mm. and just give them like everything. And then obviously like not everyone has like lots and lots of money that they can invest into like really like high level equipment. So I'm just trying to find like the, the base level conditioning protocols that I've seen really effectively work over time with like a really broad scope of athletes um obviously primarily strikers but like a lot of them let's say over 100 at least now and like i know that these conditioning protocols yield good results because they always tell me i felt the fittest that i've ever felt you know like i was in that ring it was the last round i felt like it was the first things like that you're like it's it's you know it's anecdotal evidence but at the same time and, and it's obviously subjective to the individual but when you hear it from like so many athletes and like no one ever says like i felt so unfit you're like okay <laughs> cool <laughs> you know like you know you're doing
0: something right you know yeah for sure <laughs> so then do, do you have a maybe just one example of yeah. say a, a set rep or duration protocol of that central cardiac i guess targeting and then the utilization of peripheral targeting
1: yeah sure so um with, with the more cardiac side of things, um, I'll be looking to get my athletes to work at about 85% of their heart rate max. Now, getting to, to find someone's 85% of their heart rate max can be a little bit of like a, you know, a weird one because, you know, most people will think like, oh, it's 220 minus your age. But then like, if you're working with an athlete that's been training their whole life, a lot of the time the actual true heart rate max is going to be quite a bit higher. Um, or, or, you know, like, yeah, but it, it normally, normally I just give kind of like a little bit of like a leeway based on like how long they've been trading for. So it's kind of like a, an estimation and then it comes back to kind of like infield data as well. So it's like just seeing how they respond, you know, cause like you could have two individuals that have been training for about the same amount of time. And both of them, you get them, you plug them in at a specific heart rate. Let's say I've got, you know, two 23 uh, year old guys. They've both been training for like years. They're both considered to be very fit. Like they don't really have any major conditioning issues, but they just want to, you know, get to like that peak physical condition. I plug them both in at 170. One of them could say, holy shit, Steve, that was super hard, man, like to maintain 170. Was, was like really tough for me, right? And then the other one could say, bro, that, that felt easy. That felt very easy. You know what I mean? So I'm like, okay, well, for the 170 person, that's great. Maybe I could plug him up. I could give him a little bit more room to move. I could get him up to 175, maybe. And the other person, I could say, okay, I'm going to bring you down to like around like 165. You know what I mean? So it's just like these little kind of like minute details that we just modify and we just want them to feel like they're working hard, but, then, but they're able to sustain it for the top, entire time that we're working, okay? So um, a good example of this would be like, okay, let's say they, they do three minutes of work and they do like 90, they have 90 seconds of rest. So it's like a two to one work to rest ratio, right? For that three minutes, we, get them, we plug them in at a specific intensity, um, 85%, for example, and then we get them to like maintain that for that full period of time. And then we see within that 90-second window that they have to rest how fast they're able to, like, recover. Okay, so that, that that's, like, one example on the cardiac side. On the utilization side of things, there's other things that we can do. It depends on, like, how much data you want to get from it. So, like, if you're wanting to get, like, more specific data, um, you could get them on, like, an assault bike um, and you could just say, like, okay, for eight seconds, I want you to go all out, every single thing that you've got, okay? And there's two things that we look at. So within that eight seconds, I'm looking at like one, how many calories they can burn in that eight second window and two, what's their max RPM in that eight second window as well. So that kind of tells me like how much force and like output they can produce in a really short space of time. Um, And then it just gives me something to like, it gives me like a base level reading. And what we see is, as they kind of progress throughout their camp and as they like other areas start to take shape. So for example, like their, their cardiac-based conditioning and their pulmonary conditioning, as those both start to improve, when we retest, it's a lot higher. So like their, their ability to produce force in a short space of time. And it's not just that first initial reading. It's like, I might get them to do that. I get them to rest for like a minute and I get them to do it again. And I just keep getting them to do it until we get to a point where we start to see a significant drop-off. So a lot of the time when I do this testing with my athletes, they might be able to hit, say, like, mm-hmm. five to six rounds. And then after, like, six, they start to, like, have, like, a significant percentage drop um, in terms of their output and their, like, peak RPM. But then at the end, like, or, or let's say, like, mid to, like, three-quarters of the way through their camp, we retest, and they're able to crack out, like, double what they did in their, on their first mm-hmm. session, Right. So it's just like giving them, providing them with this, with this data that helps to solidify that their conditioning is improving and their ability to like turn that oxygen into fuel in a really short space of time is also improving as well. So that, that's one way that we can do it. Another way would be just getting them on a bag and like this is where I'd really like to have like a bag that every time you hit it, it tells you like how hard you're hitting. You know what I mean? Well, and I just tell them all... like,
0: okay, Seth, Seth Lenetsky and a, a friend of mine who's now in Canada—he was developing that, but I think now, wow, that, cool. So I think since COVID, it's been a been a bit of a shit show. But I'll I'll hit him up and I'll see if he's still doing it. But I think yeah, they were looking to develop develop some similar stuff for that. That'd be epic. Wow. And even oh even up a, if he hit up uh, Speak to guys at Millennium as well. I could put you in touch there. They've got a bag a water bag with a sensor on it for their oh. research. Yeah, I'll get them on the podcast. Dude, so so
1: that, that's awesome. So they, they would just hit the bag for like, you know, the same thing, 10, 8, 6, 8 to 10 seconds. And we just see like how much yeah. kind of like power they could consistently put out. And then like, you know, over like the course of say like 12 rounds, where where they started to like drop off, mm. you know? So yeah. yeah those Something like best that's best. like, I love that. I, I love that. <laughs> thing, it's, it's just, it's so cool, right? And the part of Racket right? Because it's like, it's sports specific. Yeah. So this is where like, specificity would actually be beneficial in this in the strength and conditioning world right because it's giving us data which we can then you know co- like correctly link over to their sport as opposed to like a dynaband punch like or whatever or kick or whatever like it's just hard for us to really know if they're actually making meaningful adaptations whereas if we're able to load it you know we can add more weight add more weight the movement's great technique everything's good so we know that they're actually getting stronger there, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, when you're in fight camp or later in fight camp, and you've got say fighters have maybe two to three sparring days, how you say say you were in charge of their conditioning as well? How would you balance the conditioning with the sparring? Because obviously sparring can take its toll. Um, is, there, yeah. is there a method to the madness there? Considering you need to incre- you're generally increase the intensity of the conditioning. Within a fight camp to prepare for a fight, but then the intensity of the actual yeah. sports training is increasing at the same time. So how are you finding that balance?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, bro. So um, like it's, it's it's interesting how we kind of like develop and we like evolve as coaches. So like like I was saying to you, you know, like I've, I've kind of played around with like cutting specific things out. So like now I've started to like actually cut away the utilization side of things because I feel like, from an intensity perspective, it can push our athletes a little bit too high and can put in maybe a little bit too much of a stress response there, especially if they're really like deep in their camp. And as you were saying, they have a very intense training routine with sparring and you know really intensive, high hard pad works. Um, the beauty about the aerobic power and the um, the pulmonary based training is that you're not getting the athlete to go balls to the wall all out it's almost more like a mid mid to higher tier um you know intensity that doesn't generally induce too much systemic fatigue onto them um it doesn't have too high of a stress response it's something that like if everything's calculated correctly it shouldn't actually like damage them too much you know what i mean so from that but to to answer your question um I would still be very mindful about when I plug those sessions in. So I look to do it on a day that might be like more skills and like drilling, you know? So for example, like um, they might go in, they might do like an hour to an hour and a half of just like drilling and like skill work, but it's not like, ah, yeah, <laughs> like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a bit more like chill. So then it's like, okay, well, now we've got some more room to move here, right? Because you've had a lighter session here. So I can plug you know let's say like five hours later i can plug in this like conditioning session and it's not going to be too taxing on your body because i know that it's not like super high intensity and like historically speaking i know that it doesn't you know induce too much fatigue on you as well
0: now those are good points do you think there's room ever to put harder conditioning after sparring since then you can put all the same stress on the same day or is that starting to push too far there? Well, I guess it depends on how intense the sparring session is, but is there ever room to put like a short 10, 20 minute at the end of a sparring session?
1: Um, yeah, look, that, that's a good question. I think you can. And like, I, I know that like there are a lot of coaches that do. Um, I think having been a fighter and having gone through like full fight camps and sparring mm-hmm. with like really, really like high-level guys I think like a lot of the time, it's actually quite nice just to like finish sparring as sparring, um, and just to kind of like cap it there. Because like when you when you do get up to a high level and you are sparring with like really like elite level fighters, um, it can be like quite taxing, just like neurologically, because you're you're in there with like really 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 strong, powerful, high fight IQ killers that are like you know. You, and you do get you do get injuries you know like you get like like half kicked or low kicked, or you take like some shots on your arm or something you know so at the end of that session it's kind of nice just to like do something that might be a little bit more um, skill specific to like areas that you felt were lacking in your sparring so you've got this like fresh kind of like example of areas where you're lacking and then you're like looking to kind of balance those areas out from a skills perspective. So it's like skill, skill, you know what I mean? Um, If, for example, you're in a gym where like a lot of the fighters, they aren't at a super high level, the sparring isn't too intense um, and you felt like maybe you felt like you weren't getting that level, that intensity and that stimulation in terms of sparring, then I would say that there would be definitely room to have like some type of 10 to 20 minutes of conditioning at the end. But like, you know, I just use the guys, like some of the, the high level guys that I train, and I know like when they finish sparring, they're like pretty wrecked. Even like, you know, four to five hours later, they're like pretty like rinsed, you know? Then I need to make sure they rest, they have food, they have like a coffee or something, and then they come and do like their other training with me. So I, I you know, it's, it, it can be like a bit of a balancing act there for sure, you know? Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. In terms of the, the day-to-day schedule, how, how do you or would you structure the day when you've got say skills, plus strength work or conditioning and things like that is do, do you prefer having um the technical i guess martial arts work combat sports work done first in the morning and then the strength to conditioning in the afternoon or do you reverse that or does it depend on the day is there a little like a system you have there
1: yeah so if it's if it's up to me <clears> i'm <throat> definitely definitely going to get them to do their skills-based work before they do their strength training 100% and that like skills training being like more like drilling and like technical side of things, that type of training is like most beneficial to be done, uh, prior to any other type of training, right? Because you want them to go into that as essentially fresh as possible. Um, that being said, if for example, they just, there's no way around that. And like they, they have to do the S and C or their strength work first, as long as the following session, isn't like a really high intensity pad work conditioning session or something like that. I, I think it's like not, not like the end of the world. Like if, if they were going like strength first, they had like a decent window, like let's say like four to six hours or, you know, around four, four and a half, five hours. And they flowed into their next skills based training session. Yeah. If, if it's just like a lighter session and it's more like skill orientated, it's not going to be too bad either because they're not going to be like inducing too much fatigue in that session anyways. So, it's not going to like, the, the the kind of like compounding effect of the strength work followed by this session, it's not going to be too great, right? Because they've just kind of like stimulated their muscles if they've trained effectively, not annihilated them. And then they've gone to their next session where they're just kind of like moving and flowing. So it's not really going to like, if anything, it could be beneficial, right? To get a bit of blood flow through their body. If they're going into like a really high intensity wrestling session or like sparring or something, then I'm like, man, like, don't do it like we'll find another way we'll find another way
0: (laughs) yeah fair enough yeah i think as well for maybe for hobbyists as well maybe maybe you have some advice for them for example maybe they train four or five times a week um evening classes but obviously usually with hobbyist classes you know you've always got some hard work done is there a way for them that they can balance say morning strength training or morning strength conditioning training That you have advice on is is there a way they can do that where they can still do the class and the high intensity stuff that they have to do there but not be so beat up um for their next sessions
1: so i'd I'd tell them like definitely definitely like give yourself rest mornings i think that's something that like a lot of time like people hobbyist um based trainers or or people training in combat sports kind of neglect they think like I've got to like go hard, I've got to like make the most of every day, this kind of thing, right? Um, But they just have to understand and accept that they're not a professional athlete, they do have a nine to five job, they're not, they don't have the luxury of being able to go home and have a rest for like two or three hours, you know, in between sessions. Um, And because of that, because they are going into like an environment where they're going to be like, you know, awake and stimulated and whatnot, they don't have that luxury of being able to rest. So They just have to make sure they program in days where they're actually taking a rest. So to give an example, let's say like Monday, Wednesday, Friday was like their high intensity pad work evening training session. And then Tuesday and Thursday was like their sparring days. So I would say like, maybe like Monday and Wednesday, they could do this, or maybe they could go like Monday and maybe like Thursday or Friday, they could do their strength days. And maybe they have like one conditioning day somewhere in the middle there. But the other two mornings, are rest mornings, so they just take the morning off, they have a sleep in, or whatever, you know, maybe they do some, like, recovery stuff, something just, like, very chill, at at most, Um, and then, like, maybe, like, Saturday or Sunday, they could do some kind of, like, low, steady state, like, conditioning-based training, so whether that be, like, just going for, like, a walk, or, like, a light jog, you know, something, or, or, you know, uh, a cycle, a bicycle, you know, whatever, like, just something that's, like, really chill, that isn't going to, like, screw them up too badly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's some good advice. That's some very good advice. Well we've actually covered quite a bit in this podcast. It's been it's been a good hour now. So I don't want to take <laughs> take your whole day because we could keep going. But is there yeah. anything you yeah, want to yeah. plug, <laughs> plug website, social, anywhere where people can find you?
1: Right. Um so yeah if you guys want to uh follow me and see some of the work that I'm doing with some of the fighters that I'm training um and you want to like learn a little bit more about my training methodologies. Probably the easiest place to find me would be on Instagram. So that's uh, at Steve Pipe Fitness. And uh, if you guys are wanting to like, uh, you know, get in touch with me or get a program from me, I have a new program that um, I've just just finished creating. I've just been kind of like beta testing it on a whole stack of different top level athletes. And the overwhelming consensus is that it's really good. So it's called (laughs) Dominate. (laughs) It's called Dominate Foundations. Um, so if, if anyone's interested in, uh, trying it out, they can just, um, message me on Instagram and, um, we can, we can make that happen for you guys.
0: Perfect. I'll throw that in the description too. So if anyone wants to get there, you can just click the link down there, um, on YouTube, or if you're listening on Apple podcast or Spotify, it'll be in those descriptions too. But thanks for coming on Steve. Really appreciate it. And we we'll have to do a round two at some point too in the future.
1: Yeah. Keen as bro. Thank you, James.
0: Perfect. Cheers, bro. Appreciate it.